Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. Well, welcome back to our walkthrough of the book of Philippians. Uh, we're getting into the middle of the book this week on the podcast, and we are going to be talking about a section that includes some various exhortations from Paul. Um, we talked last week about kind of, I think, the central poem in the book of Philippians about the humility of Christ. But as a result of that, we're going to get into some uh, kind of because of what Christ has done for you, here's how you should live. And then in the middle here, he's also going to discuss uh, his plans and uh, two good examples to the Christians there, Timothy and a guy named Epaphroditus. Um, so that's what we've got uh, coming up this week. Yeah, I really love the book of Philippians. You kind of get a taste of everything Paul will do in all of the epistles. Uh, you'll get a little bit of instruction. You'll get just a little bit of rebuke in chapter 4. And you get some of those personal notes that help us remember, hey, these are real people that Paul knew that he was writing to that, that had mutual friends and different preachers and teachers that they had in common and, and shared together. And so uh, I love the book of Philippians for that reason. But for today, we're going to start in chapter 2, and we'll read verses 12 through 18. And I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing, For even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So again, the the therefore in verse 12 is coming right after this beautiful poem uh, in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 where Paul has gone through and just talked about how Christ humbled himself and then God exalted him. And so he says, all right, because of that, here's your reaction to it. And he points out in verse 12 that they've always obeyed, but it's easier to obey when there's an authority figure present. <laughs> this is especially true for kids, right? Or especially in school, when the teacher leaves the room, all bets are off. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. But when the teacher comes back, in, it's like, oh, oh, you know. And so Paul's saying, hey, listen, Make sure you obey, not just when I'm there, um, but how much more in my absence when I'm not there. Um, you guys need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. What do you think that means? Well, I really think that the the word work here comes up a couple times in Philippians. And I think it's really an interesting balance here. It came up first in Philippians chapter 1 in verse 6, where Paul in his like Thanksgiving and prayer for the church there, he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. And so on one hand, Paul is really focusing more on what God is working in the Philippian Christians and saying, Jesus began this work and he's going to bring it to, to completion. And so this is a beautiful thing to think about God working in us, strengthening us, bearing the fruit of his spirit in our life. But that is not without our cooperation or somehow like God comes down and forces us to grow or to be more self-controlled or more peaceful or more joyful. But he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling here in chapter two, verse 12. And so it's not that we're literally saving ourselves. Paul will be very clear about that all over the New Testament. We're not saved by our own works, but we got to work at it. (laughs) Uh, We're not working to save ourselves but we are recognizing that we are locked in a fearful battle and that we have a lot of work in front of us. And so because of what Christ has done for you, you put that same amount of energy and effort and work into things that pertain to salvation. That's, I think, kind of the idea here in verse uh, 12. Yeah, and I think there's going to be an example of this in chapter 3 that we'll get to, Lord willing, in another podcast. Whenever Paul uses himself as an example, in verse 12 he'll say, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. And so there's just that idea that although God is doing the saving, there's also this end of things where I'm grabbing a hold of my salvation and hanging on to it and doing what I can to be this blameless person and, and to be pure, like it talks about later in chapter 2. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, he comes back to the idea of God working in verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so it's easy for us when we think about, okay, like I'm doing good things in my life. Who's doing the work? God or me? <laughs> Yes. The answer is yes. And and if we neglect either one of those, we'll either get proud or we'll get discouraged. Mm-hmm. Because if I think, well, I, really it's just God kind of doing this. And so like I don't really have to try. I don't have to do that. Get lazy. And we're not going to grow like we're supposed to because you're not working for it. But on the other hand, if we think well, I'm solely responsible for keeping my salvation or I'm solely responsible for doing all the work in me, and it, we just get discouraged, and we're like, I, I feel like powerless. It's just I can't just white knuckle my way through Christianity. God is at work in me; His Spirit is working in me. And so a lot of the specifics of that are mysterious. We don't have all of the things, specifics revealed to us, but we have to remember that God is working, and we are working, and each work encourages us. So I, I think that's a, a cool set of passages in Philippians that kind of go together. Yeah, that's right. And so verse 14, you get to some of this more kind of miscellaneous advice and things that they need to be striving for. And I love what's in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. And uh, Stephen, I can actually remember when I was in high school, uh, my mom bought a plaque from Hobby Lobby that had this verse on it. Ah. And she had it hung up right above the stairs whenever I'd walk down to where my room was. Ah. And uh, I look back on that and laugh because at the time I don't think I realized how intentional that was. (laughs) But, you know, that admonition is not true just for teenagers. You know, this is something our culture loves to participate in. It is in grumbling and arguing. And we've uh, 
we've had our girls memorize this. <laughs> we yes. quote it at home yep. a lot. I actually realized that we didn't get it word for word. We say, do all things without grumbling or complaining. But yeah. you get the idea. Well, the New American Standard, I think, says complaining there, too. But, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. You get the idea. And one of the classic examples of this goes back to the Old Testament with the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. They were grumbling and complaining. I believe 1 Corinthians 10 actually points that out and and says, Mm -hmm. learn from them, don't be like them, as they grumbled and complained in the wilderness. Um, Because grumbling and complaining, really, at the end of the day, it's it's not realizing God for who he is and it's doubting him. Um, That's what it was for the Israelites. They, They weren't trusting enough in God that he would provide for them. And really, when you think about the day-to-day things we might complain about, uh, at the root of it, it may be because we're doubting God and we're not putting enough trust in him. And so if we're complaining constantly about our pay or the rate at which we get paid for work or whatever, um, are we doubting God? Are we saying, God, you're you're not providing enough for me? Uh, We really need to get to the root of of why we're grumbling and why we're complaining. And Paul makes it clear here, don't do that. Uh, And and the other aspect is is the effect that complaining has on the people around us and our um, example that we're setting. Um, He's going to connect our lack of complaining, hopefully, with our being lights in the world and a good example of people who are blameless and without, uh, you know, uh, blemish in the world. And it really is amazing to think about how easy it is to fall into group complaining, like, when you're just, even when like talking with strangers on the bus or on the airplane or you know whatever, one of the easiest things to do is to complain. Mm-hmm. Like, oh man, we've been here forever. Or like, oh man, the weather. Oh, you know, or the politics. You know, whatever. But it's just it's so much easier to complain than to note something really good or happy because like misery loves company. Mm-hmm. And when we are people who are just like, I'm just gonna really do my best to not complain. We're going to stand out. Yeah. We're going to be the people that are like, man, everyone else is complaining. Except for that guy over there. Like, what's up with that? And he's even smiling. <laughs> right. And, and so this really is a powerful way to call attention to the good news that God's given us. And it's not to say that we can never note that things are going poorly. There, there's In the Old Testament, and specifically in the Psalms, there's a difference between lament and complaint. Um, sometimes he talks about pouring out our complaint to God. But I don't think it's the same kind of complaint like the complaining in the wilderness. Yeah, It's possible to cry out to God from a place of faith. And I think that's what the Psalms do is they complain to God because they're hurting and they know God can help. But the other complaining, it comes from a place of unbelief and really lack of gratitude. And just, hey, why is this bad? Ah, you know, this is frustrating. And we're just venting. And that that's really where we get in trouble um, and where we're become a bad example to the people around us. I'll also say, by the way, I was wrong. The 1995 New American Standard Bible doesn't say complaining, but the 2020 update of the New American Standard Ah. does. It says do all things without complaining or arguments. And so the CSB I was reading from also says do all things without um, grumbling or arguing. So I want to talk about the arguing side of things too, because I don't want to overlook that. Because not only is our generation, you know, plagued with complaining all the time, but also have you ever met someone or been the person that it's like everything is an argument with. Um, I know I've been that way, and it's especially hard when you're dealing with other people who are that way. We need to see it in ourselves first. But we all know that that guy, right, who it's like, i got to go talk to them about this. And it's kind of an easy thing, but I know it's going to be an argument because they argue about everything. Well, is that really the kind of Christian virtue that Paul wants us to have? 
Absolutely not. That's how the rest of the world acts. They are, they're arguing about everything. And so don't be an argumentative person, um, but be easygoing, be humble. And that is not to say we can't stand up for our values and especially for truth. And uh, it's not to say that at all, but um, we need to realize that this cannot be a characteristic that overall describes who we are. Mm-hmm. And again, he's going to point out in verse uh, 15, listen, you're living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And just an observation on that. Paul is writing to these Christians in the city of Philippi in the first century. They lived in a twisted and crooked generation. But really, every generation since then of humanity has been a crooked and twisted generation. And you can see societies sometimes get a little better, sometimes they get a little worse. Usually they're doing some of both. But we, we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation now. And you say, don't participate in that. Don't sink to the level of the world around you, but you shine as lights in the world. And that I think this gives me had something different there for yeah. lights. It says, among whom you shine like stars in the world. And no, that's interesting. we did dig into that just a little bit. So that word for star, the, the Greek word that's being used here, is actually used in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's the same word for stars in Genesis 1.14 and Genesis 1.16. So yeah, it's kind of cool. The light givers. Yeah, And it's exactly. used about the uh, the holy city, the New Jerusalem in Revelation, I think. Like the, the splendor of the city. Like the lightness of the city. So it's just interesting thinking about that mental image of the stars that it's dark out. Right, the world exactly. is dark and there's very little light, but then there's these lights out in the world, and no one star produces a lot of light mm-hmm. by itself from our perspective, but all together, Christians should light up the night. And I think that's a powerful mental picture, like we're, we're, we're stars in the world, stars in the darkness, and by not complaining, by working out our salvation, by being those kind of people, uh, we're going to shine in a very dark place. And going, taking that imagery further with being together in verse 16, by holding firm to the word of life. I think there's a togetherness idea there as well that, that's carried into verse 16, that we are all rallying around this word of life and, and holding fast to it. That's an interesting uh, word search, by the way, if you ever want to do that in the New Testament. Look at when it says hold fast or to hold firm to something. Um, this is one of those places. And the word of life, hang on to it, don't let go. Yeah, and he points that out because it's the opposite of drifting. Mm-hmm. Holding fast in Hebrews has a lot to say about this, yeah, yeah. but uh, you know, stay firm within the word of life. Um, God's word, the Bible, we, that's why we have to be people of the book is because if we don't hold on to that, we're going to drift. And he points out at the end, it's possible that Paul's work could have ended up being in vain. Yeah, exactly. And there's times where you teach people, you help people to know the word, and they drift away from it. And Paul's saying, you hold on. Because if you don't, like, my work may end up being in vain. You could fall away and not be saved in the end. Paul's always thinking about the end. Uh, he said that in his prayer at the beginning. He talks about it here. And he comes back around to his the possibility of his own death here. Um, in verse 17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. It's interesting that Paul also refers to himself as a drink offering in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. Mm-hmm when he is at the end of his life and says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Um, But that image of a drink offering was something added to the sacrifice um, in the Old Testament, you know, the Jewish worship. And so he describes himself. He's he's being poured out. So even if my final sacrifice has come, 
I want you. To, I want to be glad and rejoice with you, and I want you to rejoice with me. Like maybe I am at the end, but I want us to know that this work is not in vain, and God's going to be glorified by our mutual sacrifice for Him. Yeah, and men, I hope we can have that same kind of attitude as we serve others. That's what Paul just called on them to do earlier in chapter two, and may we also think about serving our brethren in the same way. I'm pouring myself out to serve other people. I'm giving all that I have to the Lord and to his people. Uh, I want to have that same attitude. And so as we think about that principle, we're going to see that lived out in these next two examples. Uh, Let's read uh, Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30, about Timothy and then Epaphroditus. Uh, Philippians 2, 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So now look, Paul is a preacher, he is a teacher, he has a close relationship with these churches. But Paul's also a delegator. I mean, he can't be everywhere all the time. And so uh, it's kind of cool to see these notes in Philippians and several of the other epistles into 1 Corinthians, you see some of this, where Paul's like, well, I can't come to you right now, but I'm sending someone else. Uh, and you know who this person is. And so in verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So that he too may be encouraged by the, uh, so that I too may be encouraged by news about you, and so uh, he's going to send Timothy their way. And um, Stephen kind of helped me because my brain's being foggy on this. They would have met Timothy whenever he came through in Acts the sixteenth chapter. Correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah, he had picked up Timothy on that missionary journey, on the second journey at the beginning of Acts sixteen, and so Timothy would have been with him at yeah. Philippi. Now it's That's Paul right. and Silas who get you know beaten and put in prison. We don't know where Luke and Timothy were, but Timothy was there in Philippi with them. Yeah, and Paul still feels the need. I mean, he he builds Timothy up here in verse twenty. I have no one else like minded who will genuinely genuinely care about your interests. Uh, all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's, that's high praise from a guy who knew a lot of people. Yes. <laughs> Paul was well-traveled, and he's like, I got nobody like Timothy. Like, that's right. He's going to really care about you. And what, a, what a great thing to be said about any Christian. Like, I got nobody else who's just going to genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's an amazing thing. And Paul had an eye for this. I mean, do you remember back in Acts 16, it said Paul wanted this young man to go with him. Paul wanted Timothy to go. This was, I think, something Paul continued to help train in Timothy. But this is something Timothy had, I think, even Paul before Paul got to him. And he'll say in verse 22, you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. This was no... Just, you know, some formal arrangement. Oh, yeah, Timothy, come with me. I'll show you the ropes. I mean, 
this was a close relationship that Paul and Timothy had. He, he calls Timothy his son here, and he'll do the same thing in First and Second Timothy as well. And some of that, like we noted in Acts 16, was may have been because Timothy's father was a Greek and apparently an unbeliever. And so Paul may have really filled a void in Timothy's life that he didn't have growing up. This is a powerful thing that he's able to do. And so, again, these are kind of personal notes. Verse 23, I hope to send him as soon as I see how it will go with me. Paul's mentioned in chapter 1, I might live, I might die. But like he said in chapter 1, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to die. Although, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I would be okay if I died. But he says in verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Mm-hmm. So he's pretty sure that he is going to get out of that imprisonment where we find him at the end of the book of Acts. And it's for reasons like this that people speculate that books like First Timothy, um, Titus, Second Timothy are written after the book of Acts. And uh, there was another little journey that Paul went on. We don't know all the details of it. But uh, Paul seems pretty convinced while he's in prison in Rome when he's writing Philippians that he is going to get out again. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, and in verse 25, he brings up somebody else. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, fellow, sir, uh, fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Okay, we have to stop there because there's just so much more to talk about uh, with Epaphroditus. So uh, we're introduced to this guy, and there's... Let's hear one, two, three, four, like four different four different descriptions yeah. of who Epaphroditus is. First one's pretty simple. This is my brother, um, brother in Christ. I would take this to mean uh, just a very common thing that Paul will call the different guys that he works with. But he also calls him his coworker. Um, now, Stephen, is this the word that we have? I think. What does your translation say there? A fellow worker, but yeah, this is worker, the this you. is the word um, from which we get uh, synergy. Yeah, okay, thank you. Working together, excellent, thank you. Yeah, and so synergy, I really love that word. Um, in English, we, we use it in a lot of different ways, but it's normally used in like the context of a team, um, people working together is the idea. Uh, one of, one of the more helpful analogies I've heard about synergy is with horses. I'm from Kentucky and so this is something I heard a lot growing up but you know two horses together depending on the breed can pull um, about you know 12,000 pounds between the two of them depending on the breed and so how many pounds would you think that three horses would be able to pull together? Well you would think it would be 18,000 you know 6,000 a piece or whatever have you. Three horses together can actually pull 30,000 pounds uh, depending Uh. on the breed and so the idea is like the math doesn't work out because, you know, it's 6000 a piece, but there's more being done the more you add in. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, I mean, that's the whole idea of synergy. And that's my point. The, yeah. This, uh, what is it? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It, exactly. Like it, it multiplies as you work together. Yeah. And I don't want to read that English definition into what Paul is right. saying here because th- th- that can be a fallacy sometimes. But you see the point that I think Paul is making here about Epaphroditus that we work together. Like we are co-workers. We are fellow soldiers. We've been getting work done together. Is the idea? Yeah. And those four descriptions. It's just so helpful to think of fellow Christians in that light. Uh, the first description is brother. So like we are siblings. We are family with fellow Christians. And that's a beautiful thing that Jesus, God's only Son, died to adopt us into His family. And so we belong in the family of God. 
And then the second one, like you said, is this fellow workers. And it's just cool that like fellow workers, sometimes you share fellow vo- vocabulary. You know, you've been around coworkers before and like they start talking about stuff. You're like, I don't know what that is, but they know what they're working on. And so we share this particular work with fellow Christians and then fellow soldiers. There's something about suffering together as soldiers, whether it's in boot camp or in combat, mm-hmm. that bonds people together who have been in military service. And that's what we have as Christians is this fellow suffering, this fellow uh, you know, enemy that we're working against together. And that bonds us closer together when we work in that capacity. And then he mentioned specifically about Epaphroditus. He's your servant, basically, uh, messenger and servant, because Epaphroditus risked his life to bring support to Paul. Traveling was very dangerous in those days. You could get robbed. You could get sick. And that's exactly what happened to Epaphroditus. But he points out that he was a servant to you. And that's another thing that bonds us together as Christians is we're not in this for our own glory. We are fellow servants of God. And because we're not in it for our own glory, that, that, that draws us closer together. So fellow, we're family, we're coworkers, we're fellow soldiers, we're fellow servants. That's just a great way to think about each other and draw us closer together. So like Stephen said, he explains what he, why he brings all this up is that Epaphroditus got sick on the way. And in verse 27, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. I love, I love how Paul says that. Uh, when, when our loved ones are healed, um, God not only has mercy on them and takes care of them, but he's also taking care of us uh, right. in that moment as well. Yeah, and so he's so excited uh, to be able to... Um, send Epaphroditus, uh, and then to receive him back. And he points out, listen, you need to honor guys like this. Uh, He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life so that the Philippians could be generous to Paul. And that's an amazing thing, that in traveling with whatever that gift was from Philippi to Rome so that he could find Paul and give that, he was doing the work of Jesus in doing that. And so Paul says, you, you note people like that who are doing Christ's work, and you honor them. And so Epaphroditus gets uh, immortalized on the pages of Scripture, yeah. and here we are 2,000 years later talking about what he did for the work of Christ. And I think on a practical note, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, I, th- I think the implication here is Epaphroditus is the one who brought this letter most likely then. Probably so, uh, is that he was uh, carrying the gift from Paul to or from the Philippians, Philippians to, Paul, to Paul, and now he's bringing the letter from Paul back to the, thank the you Philippians. Letter. Yeah, right. that's right. And so Epaphroditus, he's saying, by the way, guys, he almost died on his way up here. Um, please be thankful to God that he's okay, and you should know this about him. Um, yeah, and he's only mentioned here in Philippians, by the way. He'll come up again okay, cool. in Philippians uh, chapter 4 Yeah, um, at the end of the letter. And... Um, so yeah, uh, he'll say in Philippians 4.18, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. I see. A yeah. fragrant offering, a, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Um, so we don't really know anything else about Epaphroditus except what we find in Philippians 2 and Philippians 4 about his risking his life to help the Philippians care for Paul. You also see Paul's buzzword that we've been talking about uh, in verse 28. For this reason, I'm very eager to send him that you may rejoice again when you see him and I may be less anxious. Uh, There, Paul again is talking about rejoicing, um, rejoicing in the Lord, but rejoicing that uh, Epaphroditus has been restored. So welcome him. um, Welcome him with great joy, 
uh, hold him and honor like Stephen just talked about because of what he was willing to risk for the sake of Christ. And it makes us stop and ask, you know, what are we willing to, to risk for the sake of Jesus Christ? Would we be willing to lay down our life in some way? And I do think sometimes when we think about laying down our life for Christ, we, we think of some dramatic moment where there's a gun pointed at our head and will you deny Jesus? And that certainly has happened throughout history and, and will continue to happen through history. But there's a lot, of, a lot of places in the world where this can still happen. Um, we had a friend not that long ago who was preaching the gospel in, in West Africa who fell sick um, to some of the diseases that run rampant over there and almost lost his life. But the Lord had mercy on him and had mercy on us. And so although these are specific people that are being mentioned, uh, these things still ring true for us today in the work of the gospel. Yeah, and I, I can't help think about that, Brother Dan Kane, in, in Africa because they named... His wife was pregnant at the time he got so sick, almost died. They named her daughter Epaphra after Epaphroditus yeah. because of this connection. It's powerful to think about that. Yep. Uh, Modern-day examples of people who are willing to, to put their lives on the line for the work of Christ and are such an encouragement to us. And so we think about this middle of Philippians. Uh, Paul is encouraging the Christians there to imitate these men, honor these men. Uh, they would have known Timothy. They would have known Epaphroditus. And he's saying, all right, listen, these are guys who are living out. You remember that poem about Christ? The humility you saw in him? That's what's in Timothy. That's what's in Epaphroditus. So they're all following the example of Jesus. It's like Paul will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's giving them other examples that they know and have met to say, here is where you see that kind of character being lived out. Yep. Amen. So Lord willing, next week we're going to pick up in chapter 3. So Lord willing, watch out for the podcast then, and we'll pick up there. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review so we can reach more people. Um, If you'd like to study with us, uh, please reach out to us. You can call or text 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.